Hello, sword people. This is Guy Windsor, also known as the Sword Guy, and I'm here today with Lois Spangler. Lois is probably best known for being a Veradero de Estreza, or Spanish rapier fencer, and for doing an awful lot of work translating Veradero de Estreza sources. Sorry if I'm mangling the pronunciation. She has an excellent blog at storytrade.net, and she has a Patreon account where you can see other of her translations and, of course, throw us some cash at patreon.com forward slash Lois Spangler, L-O-I-S-S-P-A-N-G-L-E-R. So without further ado, Lois, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Likewise. Now, just so we can locate everyone, whereabouts in the world are you? I'm, I'm, I'm a very confusing person. Uh, I am an expat Mexican-American who's currently living in Brisbane, Australia. Okay. Yes, that's yeah. um, quite a long I, way I from make, Mexico and quite a long way from the United States. Yeah, I, I kind of made sure that um, I, I got married to an Australian, and we did that in 2008 when the global financial crisis was going down, and Australia had much a much better economy at the time. Right. Okay. Sorry, you were about to tell a story, and I really cut you off. Oh, that's that's totally fine. I, it's oh, it's just a joke. It's basically, you know, considering all the new distances I keep moving every time I move. By the time I'm sixty, I'll be on the moon. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I have some experience of of continent switching myself. So um, I grew up in in South America and Africa, and then I moved to Finland, which was like. I really yeah. like hot weather. Why the hell did oh, I live yeah. in Finland for 18 years? <laughs> yeah. Um, so how do you find Brisbane? Um, uh, it, the, the climate is a lot like South Texas, which is where I did a lot of my growing up. Mm -hmm. um, but I moved okay. to Brisbane from New York City. So the change of pace <laughs> right. was significant. Yeah. But uh, to, to give Brisbane a bit of a plug, we punch above our weight in terms of HEMA schools. Um, so right, when okay. it comes, to, yeah, when it comes to historical fencing, uh, we we do not we do not uh, we do not lack. It's funny because I've been I've taught in Sydney and in Melbourne and also in New Zealand. Um, I've never been to Brisbane, so maybe I should I should make that put that on my itinerary for the next time when we're allowed to travel. I know, right? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, we'd be we'd love to have you, and we'd certainly like we've got plenty. Of, we, we can give you a, a small, you know, cooks tour of 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 the Brisbane schools, which would be a lot of fun, actually. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Yes, I would. Um, so, speaking of historical martial arts schools, how did you get started in this whole uh, sword it, world of ours? It, it, it was it was a bit sidelong. When I was in New York, um, I started learning Yaido. Uh, I was learning mm -hmm. Shinden Ryu. Uh, with Deborah Klen's big man at New York Budokai. Um, and then after a few years of getting into and out of Seiza and not knowing I had a structural issue in my knees, I cheese gratered my cartilage and I had to stop. Oh, no. Ouch. Yeah, that was not fun. Um, and then from there, I moved to Australia and I was like, oh, swords would be fun, but I can't do the Seiza because we have a couple of Iido mm -hmm. schools out here. And then. Yeah, sure. Um, I met someone through a mutual friend, uh, and this one's now a good friend of mine, Chris Lee. You may have seen some of his French translations. Uh, he I runs, know Chris, yeah. I don't think I've yeah, ever met him, but I, I know his work. Um, yeah. Uh, well, he, he would be, he's going to be delighted to hear that. 
honestly. Um, so I ended up having a good chat with Chris Slee, and he was at Vanguard at the time, and I joined up with Vanguard. Um, and this is, I, Vanguard is a, is a sword fighting club? Yeah, Vanguard is most, one of the... Most Americans and tourists will think of it as, a, as an investment firm. Oh, right, yeah. No, it's it's... I think it's changed its name, but when I was with them, it was Vanguard Swordsmanship Academy. Um, okay. Or so I, the, the name changes somewhat frequently, but it's always Vanguard something. Um, and so I studied with them. Uh, and then when someone in the in the what did you study? yeah. What did you study? Uh, it, what the, were you doing? The, the, the Van yeah the Long Vanguard. Uh, the, it's it's a single sword. He, uh, Scott McDonald, who runs the school, his he favors the uh, the sword and dagger, but he's he's sort of school agnostic. He'll he'll teach you core principles, and then once you've got those core principles down, then it's up to you to find a style that you like and you want to explore and you want to play with. But he'll teach you, you know, very um, very structured, very sort of pared down combat basics uh, with, and it usually works best best with like a transitional side sword rapier because he tends to do a bit cut and thrust um but that's that was what we studied there it, it wasn't necessarily like this is you know this is a marazzo school that that wasn't what was happening there okay yeah must um, be quite quite a change for me either well i wanted to do that because i wanted to like there, there were some longsword schools available and i thought no if i do longsword that's it's i'm gonna muddy it up with my understanding of using uh uh uh, sure. a katana. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I wanted to, I wanted to do a clean break. So I said, no, nah, single sword, let's play with a single sword and see how that goes. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it was the, 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 the way a human being has to move to get, to get a single sword to do effective things is very different than when you can support that single sword with your other hand. Um, but it's, it, it was, really cool like talk about a learning experience and i didn't have to get into and out of seiza all the time so it was great i could actually practice yeah, that, that must be a huge advantage yes I, yeah. I i've never been a fan of kneeling down in a fight <laughs> well <laughs> i mean it makes sense in a japanese cultural context totally makes sense i've done some japanese stuff and i'm, I'm familiar with it but yeah well, I, i'm would, very glad that we never have to sit on, yeah. a, on our knees like that yeah, I mean, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't be kneeling in the middle of a fight, but you might be kneeling when you're starting it. Well, you wouldn't be starting it. It's the other guy who's starting it who doesn't know any better. And then you'll show up Buddha's compassion, and he won't take it, and you'll have to cut him down. He should have known. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so, yeah, from there, um, another person in the HEMA community, Sean Reishman, uh, along with Kate Hickey and Sharon McHugh Reishman, uh, we're starting up a verdadera destreza school. They wanted to study it and they wanted to mm -hmm. to, to promulgate it. And I'm sitting here going, uh, I'm I'm, you know, I I mostly natively speak Spanish. I'm Mexican American, so I grew up with the language. And in fact, I'm a I'm a professional editor in both languages. And um, right. I thought, how amazing is it that I'm in this country that doesn't really have Spanish in the same way that the United States has Spanish as a thing that you can do as a job. And there's this school that is like right there. It's a niche. <laughs> so of course I jumped in. It was tons of fun. Of course. <laughs> okay, so that that got you started with the the practice of um, Spanish rapier as we non verdadero estrella types think of it. Okay. As yeah yeah as, as Sp Spanish rapier covers 
well, Spanish fencing covers two styles of fencing, and I can go over this now or I can go over this later, whichever you prefer. But I can give well, a general – You're talking about it now. Why don't you dive right in? Cool. So um, general – and this is this is sort of formative thinking that's built from talks with Chris Lee and with Don Boy um, out in Spain. But there's this general feeling that in the Mediterranean, uh, Spain, France, parts of Italy, there was a very cut-and-thrusty – side sortie kind of fighting that had existed for a while and had grown out of other historical stuff. So if you take a look at San Didier, if you take a look at um, Godinho, um, if you take a look at uh, some of the Bolognese masters, uh, there's, they're not identical and you can't say that they're the same thing, but there's, you can feel that there's a thematic, like, like they come from, from a similar color palette. You know, they're not they're not the same, but that like there's there's some spiritual or thematic connections uh, with with the way they they operate. And then in the uh, 1560s, this guy called Carranza comes along. And uh, and right now I'm relying on research done by uh, Dr. Mary Curtis and Puck Curtis um, and uh, Dr. Dr. Manuel Valle, um, where uh, he's he's sort of a, a low noble, kind of a clerk kind of noble. And he takes a look at the situation, like the the uh, the state of society around him, and he's he's looking at these young men who throw themselves foolishly into fights without any kind of sense, and it's all about bravado, and there's no yeah, yeah. there's yeah. no art, there's no science to it. He's like, this is ridiculous. Um, and so he writes. That's how, how George Silver felt when he looked at um, the Italian rapier. <laughs> It's right? the same thing. It's like the youth of today, they don't know they're born and they're proper principles and they're not damn well following them. And speaking as a parent, I know that feeling extremely well. Right. So uh, he writes this He writes this uh, four-dialogue book uh, among five people. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this, in these dialogues, he describes the, the true skill of fencing, la verdadera destreza, uh, the true skill of arms. And it's... Um, it, there's no real, like, there's no instructions. It's all very philosophical. But the idea is he's casting a new light on on Spanish male society uh, using fencing as a lens and saying, you know, stop being stop being these idiotic, hot blooded, emotion driven twits and start right. embodying the potential of your intellect and and the and the gifts that God gave you and actually start behaving like gentlemen for the love of God. Um, right. <laughs> so, yeah. what 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 the authors who what the people who follow the stress of what we you know what I call it LVD for short because for folks who don't speak Spanish, verdadera destreza is a ton of syllables that all sort of rattle against each other and can be really just difficult. So if you just say LVD, we all know what we're talking about. Um, yeah. So once you get Pacheco, who's the the first major author of LVD after Carranza, um, they, both Carranza and all the way onwards, they talk about the prior form of fencing um, as, uh, as vulgar fencing, common fencing, like literally vulgar or common fencing. And the trick is yeah. vulgar or common yeah. fencing can apply to the stuff that was happening in Iberia, or it can apply to what the English were doing or what the French were doing or what the Germans were doing, sure. because it's not Spanish skill. 
Um, so this is a that, common thing. Like like thirty three, they have he constantly refers to there is the common fence that does this, but the scholar, the the priest scholar, will do that instead. Yeah. Um, yeah so yeah. this is like a really common theme in fencing literature. Yeah, yeah, and you know it 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 all comes from that same, you know that uh, that uh, humanist Renaissance turn that was happening in Europe at the time. This new way of thinking about things. Um, so that's that's what we talk about when we say that the the school that I'm with, the Brisbane School of um, uh, the Brisbane School of Iberian Swordsmanship, we call ourselves Iberian because even though we focus on LVD, we focus on all of Iberian fencing. So, for instance, um, one of our one of our provosts, Ryan Tanzer, is really working uh, hard on Godinho, which is the author of the only treaties we have found so far that is written about the Iberian vulgar style. And it's pretty complete, okay. which is amazing. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. Kaya Sadowski was on this show a while ago and she waxed oh, yeah, lyrical yeah. about Godinho. Yes. Yes. I, I've gotten to play a little Godinho with her and it was awesome. <laughs> it was so cool. I can imagine. Yeah. So yeah, that was that's that's a nice quick framework of what LVD is before we go into any other kind of details later on. Okay. Uh, and so you, you started translating these texts just on a whim? Yes. Uh, so, okay. Sort of on a whim. It was more like, you know, I, I join up with BSIS and I'm looking around and I'm realizing that there is next to no material available in English. The when the SCA really kicked off and started to started to do fencing, started to do their 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 rapier fencing, for reasons that I'm not entirely clear about, I think it was just really a combination of circumstance, fortune, and luck. The Italian treatises were more easily available and more easily translated, and so those became available in English for people to use. So of course, the Italian schools and then the German schools became popular because English speakers could get to them and play with them, but uh, we we have very very little material, very little uh, primary source material in English. To to give you an example, on my website, uh, the translations I did of the offhand weapons for uh, Figueiredo. Um, mm -hmm. That's the first that nobody else has put that in English. Nobody else has. That, right. That's the first time we've seen that in English. Okay, I have a I have a theory because I was around when. When or yeah, you know, I've been doing this since the sort of early nineties, and yeah, yeah, I think we probably got into the Italian stuff first because the late Victorian sources, like Hutton, for example, mm, and Castle, mm -hmm. tend tend to go on at some length about the Italian stuff. But if I remember right, right they don't even mention the Spanish. And no, also, no, the Eger Egerton Castle does mention the Spanish, but not very favorably. Okay. <laughs> oh well, then okay, but also. Um, if I remember rightly, um, most of the the Spanish sources aren't particularly illustrated, whereas oh. the Italian sources tend to tend to have pretty pictures that you can just follow. It depends on the source because um, if you're if you're talking about Rada, who came out in the early 1700s, that is ex that is extensively illustrated, and in fact he develops oh, sure. a a 3D coordinate system to tell you exactly where mm -hmm. your sword should be at any given time. Yeah. But, but no, no one had even seen Radha yeah. in, yeah. in as you know. We never even heard of him until what ten years ago. Possibly. So in the nineties, we could f we could find copies of Capaferro, for example, right? Um, 
And, and even and if Fiore. you didn't read Italian, you could look at the pictures. Right. Um, yeah, Fiore, Fiore was a little bit later um, yeah, in, and, in and terms of when, when we got access to the scans. You're absolutely but, um, right. The, the are, images in the Spanish books absolutely require exegetical text, not even captions. You need exegetical text. Right. So, so I, th- I think, I think it's also, we, we were directed towards the Italian stuff by the 19th century people right. and we could actually find the Italian stuff in re- relatively easily in libraries and get photocopies of them and what have you. And that meant that there were sources with pictures that people could start playing with. And then they want, Oh, oh my God, I want this in English. And so yeah. people like William Wilson, Langer started translating them, bless yeah. them. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, um, so whereas the only Spanish, I mean, the earliest, I think the first time I ever saw a Spanish text would be in about 2003, something like that. Um, so we'd already been doing Italian stuff for you know, nearly a decade by then. Yeah. And there were no pictures. Yeah. Right. So, so if you didn't speak Spanish, then you had no way of really getting into the text. Yeah. So I think it's a combination of those things. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. And of course, Tibot doesn't help. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. yeah, we, we we found Tibot early, and Tibot was like we think of Tibot as sort of Spanish rapier. By all oh. means, by all means, jump in on that if you like. No, no, but he honestly he is he's a part of the tradition. I I accept Tibot as an extension of the tradition because he is a lot of his stuff. Okay, sure. uh, it, I've been I've been practicing with a friend of mine out here. Um, mm-hmm. And he focuses on Thibaut, um, but he also helps me out with just regular Vestresa. And there's there's enough overlap. And what I find incredibly interesting is that Thibaut's book is 1630s, but there is a lot of stuff in Rada, uh, 40, uh, sorry, 70, 80 years later, that is very, very Thibaut in feel. And I, I think that's incredibly interesting, and that is a rabbit hole I would like to go mm-hmm. down eventually when I have a clone. okay yeah i mean you look at tibbo and personally when i look at tibbo i don't feel inspired to try it because it all just looks very very complicated yeah and that's the thing like it is it looks so impenetrable i agree it looks impenetrable it looks very uh i've i've had i've had people say is it's it looks esoteric is it esoteric and i'm like no it's just geometry but it's it's one of those things. It's like a it's like a high concept where you can't describe the film in three sentences. But once you explain the film, then it all makes sense and it's and it's intuitive. Sure. Once you understand the sort of the layout and structure, and that's sort of what the Stresa is like. It's um, it's a little, uh, it's um, I was going to say it was like the game of of goal, but honestly, the rules of the Stresa are a bit more complicated than that. Yeah. So. Um, okay, so so you started translating Spanish texts. How did you choose which ones to do? Oh, so <laughs> it's all tied in with BSIS, really. Um, okay. So uh, uh, Puck Curtis had, was it was running. I think this is like 2016. He was running a Destreza workshop um, up in Vancouver. Um, at Academy Duello. And I, I certainly didn't have the money to go, but a bunch of the BSIS folks did, and they went as a group. Okay. And one of the things, okay. 
Yeah. I'm like, yay. I can, um, I can just imagine a whole bunch of Australians rocking up in Vancouver just to go see Puck. That's, that's, you, um, I mean, I know, I know Puck really well. He totally deserves that kind of, um, that's that kind of fan base that will literally yeah. fly across the planet to go see Yeah. Him. Oh, yeah. And so one of the things that was happening was, uh, I think Tim Rivera was there as well, but I may be confusing events. But there was, there was talk of offhand weapons in the Stressa and um, the Stressa sword and dagger. Figueredo sword and dagger was being taught. Uh, right. So when they came back, they're like, okay, because the school was very new and we were still building our curriculum. Like, you know, we, we've got levels. So you, you've got your beginner classes, you're sort of your induction. You come in, we, we tell you what we're about. We put a sword in your hand and if you like it, we'll see you next week. And then once you, once you start coming in fairly regularly, you're, you go into the novice curriculum, which teaches you just the fundamentals of your footwork and sword work and sword actions. And then we move you up to apprentice where we start getting into more complicated sword actions like, um, like the generals, which are spiral actions. And then you hit scholar where we put an offhand weapon in your hand. Okay. We, we did not have, <laughs> we did not have a, a built out scholar curriculum because there was no material. So um, right. in a conversation between Sean and Puck, I believe um, Puck mentioned, listen, um, Agea Editora. Um, uh, Agea is the uh, Asociación Gallega de Esgrima Antigua, which is the, uh, the, the Galician Association of Historical Fencing. They have their own publishing house mm-hmm. um, and oh, wow. they've, they've put out, amazing stuff it's stuff that they're discovering sort of in the northwest of spain so it's 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 galicia it's a bit of portugal it's spain but they're finding all these texts that we thought were lost like the figueredo text oh wow yeah oh it's just amazing stuff that's coming out of that's that's very exciting yes it is i i a billion percent agree um and um so the figueredo text had been out maybe a year at most and so Puck was saying, well, if you, you know, if you want to continue doing, if you want to continue working on offhands and you've got somebody who can read Spanish, well, tell them to pick up this book. Now, Puck is a very, he is a very smart and far-seeing gentleman. And I like, it sounds incidental, but I'm pretty sure like he absolutely knew what he was doing when he said that. So <laughs> I ended up I ended up buying the book and I'm like oh look it's old Portuguese <laughs> I don't speak Portuguese um, but old Portuguese is closer to Spanish um, okay. than than modern Portuguese so I was able to kind of uh, you know ham fist my way through it, it. Yeah. yeah so I translated I translated Figueiredo's offhands because we 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 needed an offhand curriculum. We needed an offhand syllabus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's very practical. I, I'm, I'm the same. I, I translate stuff from Italian as and when I need it. Yeah. I don't, I'm not interested in, in starting at the beginning of a book and going, well, I've done it once with value, yeah. but yeah. Um, generally speaking, I don't want to start at the beginning of a book and just translate it because if you can read it, you don't need yeah. to translate it. And if you can't read it, you can't translate it. So... To my mind, it only makes sense to translate it when you, let's say you're, you're giving a class on a particular topic. And so you need that bit of the text in English so the students will understand it. And so I'll trans- translate that bit. But yeah, it's because yeah. translation is a ferocious amount of work. Yes. 
yes, it is. And I know you know exactly what that, like, yes. <laughs> it is not a small amount of work. I um, uh, the, the Sacramento Sword School has been running uh, the Stressa Lecture Series. And Puck very kindly invited me to participate. So uh, I, I talked about what it means to translate, you know, how much you go, what, what you go through to translate, what, what goes on. Yeah, I, I watched this in preparation for this interview. I, I watched your lecture. It was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I, I still uh, can't quite believe it. We should include a link to it in the show notes. Um, so that people, if, we yeah. should include a link to it in the show notes. So uh, people who really want to dive deep into the translation rabbit hole can do that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, uh, the, the one thing I'm still a bit surprised at myself about is that I I said, hey, why don't why don't I do some live translation? And I did it. That was. Yeah, that's that's a gutsy move. But it, it does show people the kind of pratfalls and the pitfalls and the thinking and the stuff. And the yeah, but and, and it, what was really nice was um, a lot of other translators came out and said, oh, man, I thought I was the only one who did this thing. Ah. It was really nice to hear that, you know, other people are thinking about this stuff and are going about it this way. So in a, I'm really glad I did it because I feel like I ended up validating other people's processes because there, there is no one way up that mountain. No, uh, there are many wrong ways up the mountain, but <laughs> there, are, there, are, there, are, there are also many ways that actually work. Yeah. Um, okay, so... So you're producing these these English translations of Spanish texts so that yeah. um, Anglophone practitioners of L- LVD can get access to the sources. Correct. Have I summarized that correctly? Yeah, yeah, that's That's correct. an excellent and, thing to be doing. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, that was originally, like, that was originally all I was doing. I wasn't planning on, on mm-hmm. asking for money, but then COVID hit and I lost my job mid-March. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Wee! Uh, so I said, well, you know what? Um, I, I now have extra time to translate and I need to pay the rent. Uh, right. Yeah. And, and the, the, the important thing to know about the Patreon, the very important thing you need to know is mm-hmm. that the Patreon only guarantees you early access and some slightly more direct access to me. Because generally, if you, you know, if you message me and you're like, hey, in, in your Buckler translation, you say this, but I'm confused. I can be like, let me double check. I'm happy to talk with people about the translation. So, yeah, you know, if folks have questions, they're welcome to contact me. Um, but, uh, you know, once, once, once a whole chunk has been out on the Patreon for three months, then it'll go out to the public. It goes out on Story Trade, and everybody can access it. Our three months is generous. I mean, most places that do Patreons like with so early access to podcasts or whatever, they they do, you know, you get it like two days before everybody else. So <laughs> I think three months is very generous. Uh, you know, it's it's a it, it's a reasonably small amount of time. It's a reasonably long amount of time. But what I've found um, is that, for the most part, as far as I can tell, the people who are who are contributing to the Patreon are less interested in early access as they are in making sure I can spend a significant amount of time putting new material right. out into the world. Because the, the Patreon yeah, well, specific- the, the yeah, exactly. Um, th- this Patreon is specifically only about Pacheco's compendio, uh, which hysterically, if you know anything about Pacheco, is his abridgment of Carranza's yes. book, right? 
Um, it's his ab abridged version of Carranza's book, omitting anything that isn't about fencing it directly. So uh, okay. it's the, the reason I liked it was because you know, a lot of people, rightly so, are clamoring for Carranza to be translated. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it's, it's sort of near and dear to my heart because I've got an MFA in playwriting. Um, and it's a dialogue. Right. One of the things that I that just I it I love it so much is that Carranza had a beautiful ear for 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 speech. I can hear the words. Like when I'm reading, I can actually hear somebody speaking them, which is lovely. Um, on the other hand, Pacheco is kind of like slogging through knee deep mud. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it is amazing that. Like some of the most famous sources, Marozzo being a great example, are written by people who just could not write. Oh. Or, I mean, well, there's also there's also like literary styles and traditions at the time that make it even worse. Yeah. Like, oh, Pacheco was part <laughs> of the, uh, I always forget the names, but there there were two competing styles. There was, there was um, Pacheco who was following Gongora and then there was Quevedo's style and Gongora, like it even sounds, you know, fancy. It's it's yeah. it, it's a, it's a style of writing where the subject of the sentence is kept approximately twenty three miles away from the predicate of the sentence, and then you have well, all these recurring internal fanciful uh, descriptions of offshoots and side shots and and slightly tangential things so that you literally have to just sit there and like take the sentence apart like Lego and be like, okay, here's, here, here's my verb. What does it apply to? I don't know. Um, and then Quevedo was exactly the opposite. He's like, no, your, your, your intellect is shown by how clearly and cleanly uh, you can speak. So he's, he's a lot more poetic. He's a lot more distilled and poetic. And of course um, there's a, there's a, uh, uh, an apocryphal, story um about uh quevedo and pacheco having a having a uh duel where quevedo wins <laughs> uh but, okay. but something must have happened with him because if i'm not mistaken pacheco did dob quevedo into the into the uh, inquisition so it was it was not a friendly rivalry god that's 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 <laughs> like um swapping somebody these days yeah yeah god yeah. okay Wow. Yeah. It's funny. The use of language is, it's really distinctive to people. And you have, for example, Vijani who writes this wonderful, uh, Los Geramo. Uh, yeah. in, he wrote it in about 1550 and it's a dialogue between, yeah, yeah. uh, three people. and it's, it's this fantastic conversation and reading the Italian, you, you can, you can literally hear them speak like, like you're saying, mm -hmm. uh, but, um, there was, there's a, famous story about i think it was bismarck that uh, a friend of mine is a professor who has translated from russian and german and what have you and he told oh, me wow. this story a long time ago so i may be messing up the details but there's there's this english tourist in germany listening to i think bismarck speak and his friend who's german says he will translate for him and so bismarck starts talking and after a couple of minutes the english guy nudges the german guy and says what's he saying and then German guy goes, shh. And a few minutes later, he nudges him again. And the German guy goes, shh. And then after about 15 minutes into the speech, the English guy is losing patience, nudges his German friend. And the German turns to him and goes, shh, I'm waiting for the verb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
I feel that. Right. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because because there, there are these there is rhetorical ways of using language that just make it absolutely oh. impenetrable for anyone who isn't a native speaker to hold all that information in their head to get to the necessary end of the sentence where you can actually get the meaning to come through. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I try not to write like that myself. I, I, I'm very much of the, um, it should, yeah. The, the, if you think clearly, you should write clearly. And if you don't write mm-hmm. clearly, it's an indication to me that you probably don't well, think that clearly either. You know, I, I come out of a, I come out of a prose journalism background. So for me, clear writing is paramount. Don't, don't faff around. Don't do that. I mean, unless you're doing it for satirical purposes or something, but if you're trying to convey information, don't, don't obscure it. Don't do that. <laughs> Why? Exactly. Now, um, your blog's called Story Trade, which is a great URL. Um, and it's a storytrade.net for those of you who want to go poking around. Um, and I did a little bit of poking around through, through it, and I came across this gem. Um, speaking in your voice, I see everything as a narrative, as interlocking, cross-diverting narratives. Right now, now mine have to do with historical fencing, an interactive narrative, less as an academic examination and more as a philosophical lens layered over vocation. So um, what is your vocation? Uh, I am, by trade, I've been, I've been uh, a writer, editor for... Uh, 25 years now mm-hmm. uh, in English and in okay. Spanish. Um, but story trade, this, this website uh, emerged when I was working on a doctorate of creative industries that I had to abandon. Um, mm-hmm. And my, what I was, what I was examining at that time was interactive narrative uh, through, I'm about to get really academic. So if you're not interested in the That's academics, go get yourself some tea. Um, uh, it's it's looking at um, it's looking at narrative and then interactive narrative through a Bakhtinian lens. Now, Mikhail Bakhtin was a Russian then Soviet uh, philosopher um, and uh, writer, thinker of literature, um, and he his his uh, dialogic work. He has a concept called dialogisms. His di- dialogic works um, are very different from the novels that preceded it because. If you think of if you think of Charles Dickens and you think of um, works of the 19th century, um, the characters don't feel the characters are kind of pushed around by the author who needs them to do things to get a story or a theme or a moral across. And what right. Bakhtin talks about, he says, you know, dialogism is in strongest evidence in the books of Dostoevsky, where. Um, the story is not a plot that's just like set out from the start. It is um, the story emerges from the interactions of a number of different characters, each of whom is a fully formed psyche and has their own ethical and moral standpoints, things they will gladly do, things they will refuse to do on principle. And so Events happen around these people. They respond to those events. They respond to each other. And the story emerges from that interaction. Uh, so if you think of any Dostoevsky novel, and, and a lot of modern novel writing today, like if you talk to writers, a lot of them will say, oh, I was trying to get through this chapter. And then I had to toss out half of it because my main character just refused to go into the warehouse. They just wouldn't do it. 
Right. And that, that's common. It's water. And like, it happens to me too. It happens to me when I'm writing short stories. It happens to me when I'm writing plays, I'll have a character who's like, no, I'm not going in that warehouse. Nope. Why am I even at the warehouse? I should be at the diner. And I'm like, fine. Okay. I'll write the scene at the diner. What is your problem? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if you take that idea that uh, a dialogic work um, involves characters who are fully formed they're not just two-dimensional pastiches that do what you need them to do and then they go away like they're actual people who yeah. feel like they have a past and definitely have an angle toward the future mm -hmm. if you now invite the audience who originally were readers or viewers of a movie possibly if you invite the audience to come in and participate and have agency in the story so that they are now one of those mm -hmm. characters now you have a framework of of looking at how to develop interactive narratives like you know mass effect like uh tabletop role-playing games of all stripes um sure. it's um it's a way of it, it's kind of a rubric of thinking about how much agency you're giving your players how much agency you're giving the person running the game so for a computer game it's very it, it's 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 by force narrow and limited because you cannot write an ai that will operate like uh, a GM would in a tabletop game yet. I'm sure that's coming. Um, but in, in a tabletop RPG, you are far less limited because if you have a collaborative atmosphere between the person who's running the story and is running these NPCs, all of whom are characters with their own drives and needs, um, then that creates a really rich environment. Even if you, you know, like, you don't have to have a huge map, you, although there are tons of fun to draw and generate lots of great story. Um, if you have even a limited cast of characters that will play off of the player characters as they play off of themselves and play off of you, uh, it creates this very rich, dynamic, um, interactive narrative for everyone. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that that went into is is the sort of technical depth that we we normally we normally do that sort of thing with sword stuff. But yeah. so you're talking about basically narrative theory. So you see, um, so your vocation to go back to the actual question. Your vocation is effectively. Um, let me see if I can I can I can phrase it sensibly. It's. I've, I've got you're, one. You're if you deeply don't. concerned with language. You're deeply concerned with language, but not just language as um, as a tool that, that an individual uses to manipulate events around them, but as a sort of network of interlocking um, incentives and and pressures that direct action. Yeah, uh, in in effect, I am a I'm a communicator and a facilitator. Uh, when when I'm working as an editor, my job is to help you get out of your own way uh, so that you okay. can clearly say what you want to say. And my job is to make sure that I communicate with you clearly and understand what it is you want to get across so I can help you make that statement. Um, Lewis, if you're, if you're pitching to edit my next book, you're doing a very good job of it. Uh, you know, I, I also have the background sword knowledge, so I'm just <laughs> saying. And, and yeah, I do have no, a schedule availability, so... <laughs> okay. Oh, well, <laughs> let's see how we go. Um, okay. So your philosophical lens. Yeah. Um, so so your your um, 
these interlocking cross-diverting narratives through historical fencing, etc. Um, it's a philosophical lens layered over vocation. So philosophically speaking, yeah. speak philosophically. Go ahead. Uh, I love coming from a collaborative perspective. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, I first really quantified it when I was in grad school doing my MFA and uh, at, in the program that I was in. Uh, you, you not only like the it was um, you had playwrights, you had actors, you had dramaturgs, you had directors, mm -hmm. and I don't know if we had stage designers. I don't think we did. Um, but you have these different groups, and they would part of the program was for all of us to interact and work together, and sometimes switch roles. So like uh, at one point, a director would be the playwright, and an actor would direct. Mm -hmm. And then I would act uh, so that we could all get a sense of what everybody was doing and how how the um, how the parts uh, make a whole greater than those parts. Um, and that okay. that Bakhtinian construction where you have this interaction among all of these uh, vectors of information, whether they're sentient beings or events that you can't stop or that can be stopped, depending on what you do. Um, all these interactions combine to form a larger picture. So the, the fundamental idea is collaboration. Um, collaboration will always reward you with more than you put in, if everybody's putting right. it in good faith. Uh, that, that, so, that's a good definition of, um, of, sort of the, the, uh, the power of teams. It's, yeah. it's more than the sum of its parts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this idea of collaboration is it's, it's the way that I do everything. Um, I could work solo, but if I don't have to, I won't. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So like with, uh, so how do you collaborate on your translations? Um, oh, sometimes, sometimes I'll check in with other experts and I'll be like, you know what? I've got this phrase that's driving me crazy because literally speaking, it translates into this, but it feels like it's a colloquialism to me, but I don't know it. Yeah. Can you help yeah. me out? And, you know, two or three people will be like, ah, oh, yeah, it just means this. I'm like, oh, great. Thank you. Wonderful. Yeah. You know, or I'll, um, I'll, I'll put out an early translation of something and then people will say, you know, I, your, your footnote says it sounds like this, but using the, the language that you've generated there, could it also be this and this and this? And like, you know what? I never would have saw this. I never would have seen that. I don't have the, I don't have the background knowledge to have perceived that at all. And I'm glad you mentioned it. So I'll pop that into a footnote on the next time around, make sure that you're credited. Um, it, it's the same reason that I'm 100% in favor of many different translations of a single text. Because oh, sure. I'm going to come with all of my own background information, all of my own um, contexts, uh, which both give me lots of insight, but also lock me away from other insights. And so if we have somebody else come in and do a translation, well, they're gonna, it, you, if you wanna be reductionist about it, you can, but that that's not helpful to anybody. Um, but if you wanna be collaborative about it, you can build information that is greater than the sum of its parts. Sure. And, and it's, it's true, but even if you're looking at a text that you're not translating, but just you're reading yeah. the source, mm -hmm. um, different people will read the source differently. 
no matter what the source is, whether it's a story about you know some a, a story or if it's a fencing manual or anything else, um, you know the 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 text, if you like, is created by the interaction between the words on the page and the mind that's experiencing those words. Yep. So the more the more people we have, particularly people from different backgrounds, etc., who are looking at a given text, like Fiore, for instance, the better. Because I mean, even though um, some some you know, all of the people doing it will make mistakes and will be definitively wrong in some places. I mean, I, I can't count the number of times. Um, one of my colleagues has pointed to some bit in the text and said, guy, it says this here, which means that thing you just did over there has to be wrong. And I'll look at the text and go, bugger, you're right. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. And then, it's normal because it's, it takes a really long time to get a big complicated text all into your head at once. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And, and you might so, be, you might be really caught up in grammar and not being, pay, not paying closer attention to the meaning because you cannot at that point in time. Right. Yeah, or or you you tend to I don't know just elide various bits of the text together in your head and come up with with a mistake that way. Um, but if we're looking at, should we say, a physical practice of swordsmanship, everybody is different anyway. So yeah. the correct way for any ten people to do, for example, Furious Art of Arms, or I would say La Verdad La de Estrella as well, you're going to get ten slightly different ways of doing it you have to because they're different heights different shapes whatever yeah and, um, and the system so talks again, about that in in the very foundations of its, of its philosophy it acknowledges right. that and in fact talks about it quite directly oh cool that, yeah. um where is where would we find that because i need um, to go read that now it'll it'll i i'm still working on it man um uh, <laughs> it's gonna be okay. it's, it's gonna be out in the compendio uh, it'll be out in the okay. compendio translations. I've already hit a bunch of stuff in the first dialogue, so that'll be coming out in the next couple of months. But I can I can give you a boiled down version. So um, the LVD authors base a lot of this work on Aristotle, on physics and metaphysics, and the four causes yeah. are a really big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so they'll actually they'll actually break down fencing and and pair it off with the causes. So they'll say, you know, we've we've got, you know, we've got a material cause, we've got a formal cause, we've got an efficient cause, and we've got a final cause in fencing. And they will talk about it. And the authors don't necessarily agree on what's what, which is very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, because it means that you have room to look at your fencing practice and say, all right, what is the material cause of fencing? Well, is it my sword? Is it me? Is it both of us? Well, what's the formal cause of fence? Oh, well, the formal cause is all the, you know, it's it's the curved steps that I take. It's the way that I I I, I move so I can get my angle, and it's the way that I apply my blade so that I control the opponent, or at least I control the line. Um, all right, great. Okay, so we've got we've got the material, we have got the formal. What's the efficient cause? Oh no, is that me? Oh no. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, the final cause is obviously me hitting the other guy or making sure I don't get hit. All right. Well, we got that down. So, whoa, which is which? Um, so, uh, for instance, Figueiredo, uh, he says the, the material cause of fencing is distance, period, end of story. Okay. And I really like thinking about that because, it, yeah, you, don't, you, you certainly don't have any kind of action against your opponent if you're not within distance. Right. If you're not within distance, you might as well just be standing sipping tea. 
Um, right, there's no tempo outside of measure. Right. A tempo is, a, is an action done in measure. Out of measure, there's nothing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, so uh, other authors, I think Tejedo, I can't remember offhand, he, he does say that the, he says the material cause of fencing is the sword and possibly distance, I think. Um, okay. And then the, the uh, efficient cause would be the fencer. And the formal cause is all, of course, the angles and the shapes and stuff like that. Um, so because of that, in fact, like I'm literally translating right now. Well, not right now, earlier today. Mm-hmm. There's a section in, there's a conversation that talks exactly about that. There's, I, I can't remember if it's Meliso. I think it's Meliso who's like, okay, so like, I understand what you're saying about your geography, your ge- geometry stuff, but like, I don't understand how this can be a universal rule if you've got really tall people who are weak and really short people who are strong. And if you've got a strong person who's, who's you know, out to get you there and they're tall, well, they already have an advantage over you because they're tall and strong. Like, you know, if their body was going one way on the sword the other, I could see how you could do something about it. But if all of them is going to one thing at the same time, how do you put up with that? Um so there is like th- these questions that we get from students and we get from, you know, us at instructor meetings where we're like, we've got taller fencers, we've got short, you know, I'm, I'm fairly short on five, six. Um, and, you know, our chief instructor is like six, one, six, two, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. And we have another student who's about that tall. So, you know, we have people who are shorter than me and they're like, how, how do I, how can I actually safely apply on a tajo on somebody who outreaches me so much. And, I was like, and I'm like, there are ways and I will show you. And it has to do with angles and it has to do with how, do you, how you hold your arm. You don't live in a right angle guard, but that is, it, it is a useful place to move through whenever you're trying to get stuff done. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, I got that, that, it got that country, in my head. No, no, that's great because it, it basically it sent me off in my head into this gigantic long um, sort of article length sidetrack into how this applies to teaching Fiore to people. Um, and I, we have listen if, like, if you want to have a conversation later on, if you want to set up another chat, I'm happy to I'm happy to work it out with you. <laughs> but just wait till I translate this section. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So now bringing things back to bringing things back to physical practice, what have been your biggest sort of challenges and concerns? I know you, you hurt your knee doing um, all that kneeling down stuff. Uh, so yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've done a lot of work on supporting the knees. So that usually doesn't get me. What does get me is uh, I've, I've been overweight since about the age of nine. Um, I hit puberty and everything went haywire. Uh, I've got a, mm-hmm. a, a couple of conditions that make it very difficult for me to be um, you know, what people would call a quote unquote normal size, though I take issues with that term. Uh, so I am a, I am a fat woman who fences (laughs) and that, that brings so much baggage (laughs) as so much baggage. Um, so in, in terms of challenges, uh, you know, I go to the gym, I, I fence, uh, two to three times a week. So, you know, I'm supporting my physicality as best I can uh, to make sure that sure. I can fence safely, which means I can fence mm-hmm. for years to come. 
you know, I'm, I'm not out there to go hammer and tongs because that's, I don't enjoy that. I much more enjoy uh, a, a more stepped back, really technical bout because then I can, Right. Then I can take a look at my technique and I can see where I've got things missing or I can see where I'm really beginning to get things to click. Um, it's just more interesting. I personally think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, if, I, I if, would agree. If I wanted to be, if I wanted to do a more, more athletic kind of fencing, I would have gotten into sport fencing because then you have the minutia of, you know, just incredibly jet fighter, fast decision-making operations yeah. with a lot of athleticism. Uh, I can't sure. do that. <laughs> um, uh, and then just there is much more fat shame in the United States. In Australia, I have not encountered it anywhere near as significantly, um, okay. which is wonderful. That's, that's odd, I'm saying, because America is. is significantly more obese as a nation than Australia is, I think. No, uh, we're pretty much neck yeah. and neck now, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Uh, but just in terms of attitudes, and part of it is, you know, as you get older, you start to you start to prune the people who are around you, and the people who are not supportive sure. of you, well, they fall by the wayside. When you're younger, yeah. you're just like, I need a network. I do. I'm new in the world. Oh God, help! You know. But once as you get older, uh, you can start to settle into a group of people who genuinely support and love you, and that makes a huge yeah. difference. Um, of course, uh, overcoming them. Uh, so, uh, there, there's a thing I talk about occasionally on my blog called the sock puppet of self-doubt. Yeah. Um, and it is, it's the voice of imposter syndrome. It, it likes to talk with the brain goblins who are worse. Uh, and it's all about, you know, I, I've, I've taught, I've taught workshops, um, on various different things in Australia. Uh, and there are times when I step out there and like, I know I am the biggest human there. I'm the fattest person there. And I'm like, okay. you know, I'm a girl, I'm fat. Mm -hmm. who, who, who takes me, who's going to take me seriously? Well, uh, what rubric am I working on? Anybody is with it the brain? action? Yeah. You know, is it, is it, um, you know, am I actually taking into account the actual people who are here or am I working under these old worn and not at all accurate con uh, conceptions that, that, that have no business being in my library anymore. Uh, and the only way I've found to overcome them is to just trust, take a risk and trust, make sure you've got good friends with you who can, who can reel you in and protect you if something does go haywire and help ground you. Mm -hmm. um, but just get out and do, because it's so rewarding when you step out there and people are like, okay, you're going to teach us about, about this, uh, this newly published, this, this a small sword text whose author is only a set of initials. All right, let's do it. Um, and, and people are engaged and interested and there's, you know, a lot of back and forth and, and it just, it becomes fun. You know, it's like, I enjoy teaching because, you, you know, you, you come to the subject, I know certain things, you're going to find other things and we find all this cool stuff and we get to play. Uh, and and that's it. It's just um, it's just having, you know, having some safety anchors and just having a little bit of trust and moving ahead. And that can be very hard. Like that can be really hard for some people who have been treated very unkindly in the past. And I recognize that. But if you can find a couple of anchors and you can start pushing your boundaries, it's a great place to be. It's really good.
yeah, well, I, I, I don't know quite what it's like to, um, to experience that, but I have had, I've, I was at an event once and, um, basically somebody showed up expecting me to be basically a backflipping Conan type and <laughs> left, left because basically I wasn't fit enough for their taste. Oh, so it's like, right. like, it's like, okay, to which, to which, to which my, my, my response to that was, you know, obviously you're an idiot. Um, yeah. So I don't actually care. And, yeah. but yeah, people are weird. And yeah, people will make when, some when strange you, judgment calls. Yeah. Like my, one of the best martial arts teachers I ever had was my Tai Chi teacher called Steve Fox. And he's a big bloke. I mean, yeah. you know, big belly and what have you. And um, he absolutely astonished me once by doing a pistol squat, oh. which I couldn't do. I was like 19 yeah. and fit and whatever else. And, you know, yeah. and there's this guy who's, who's probably, I don't know, 30 kilos overweight, 40 kilos overweight, something like that. Mm-hmm. And he just did a pistol squat just for fun. Oh. And also, also possibly just to make a point. Yeah. Right. Yep. But, but, you know, you could, you could, you could see, if, if you just come in and you see the man in his shape, you would just yeah. you would assume, you know, unfit or whatever. But then he just drops a pistol squat and you. <laughs> and you're like, oh. I think actually, look, looking back, I I never really thought about it before, but looking back, he might have done it. Um, because perhaps he got the impression that some of the kids in the class were underestimating him, and yeah. he just thought that would be a good way just to shut them up without saying anything. <laughs> Uh, and it worked. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So, all right. So I imagine being larger, you have trouble getting equipment. Is that true? My protective it's a living gear? hell. It, That's what it is. It's a yeah, living I, hell. I, I have a suspicion it might be because, you know, it's, the equipment tends to be made to a standard size, which tends to fit, should we say, average sized men and yeah. doesn't ever fit anybody else. And even so, then, so like, how do you get around that? Uh, you don't get around it. You 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 push through it as best you can. Um, okay. So uh, you save up money so you can get a custom jacket. I've got uh, a right. custom officers from Spes. Um, Lovely. Okay. And I I first of all I want to give them due credit. They did a great job. There's only me- one measurement that's a tiny bit off, and you know it's not. It's certainly not a deal breaker. I gave them significantly more measurements than they asked. So if you take a look at their order sheet where they tell you to put all in all the numbers for like the A, the B, the C, the D, mm. the E. I also included um, the uh, the girth of my wrists. I also included right. the largest circumference of my bicep. I included um, from the collarbone down to my waist. And then from the nape of my neck down to my waist, so they could see just how much more fabric they were going to need for the front of me. And right. even th- that, that's the one that went a little bit wrong. I don't have quite enough room in the bust. Um, but it doesn't keep me from fighting. I think if I were, if I were fighting longsword, it might be more difficult. But because I'm only using one sword and I can adjust my body internally, it, it's not a big deal at all. Um, okay. And, and to be yeah. fair, when you fit a jacket, if you if you go to a tailor to get a suit made, um, you go back for several fittings. Yeah, and and um, and no tailor that, gets it right first time. 
Yeah, and so, and I do want to give him credit, but that also brings to that also brings to bear the problem of a lot of PPE, which is most jackets. Uh, I can't think of any manufacturers of jackets and and trousers outside of Europe and Asia right now. Um, okay. Which 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 brings me to this quick mention because I I was recently uh, I'd been contacted by a fellow diestro, another LVD practitioner, uh, Phil Swift up in Canada. And he said, hey, I'm partnering up with uh, with the seamstress here that I know. Um, and uh, we're 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 trying to put together. Um, we're trying to put I'm helping gather PPE equipment that's sold in the Americas uh, because okay. it's really expensive to buy stuff. And all I can think is shipping from Europe to the U.S. or Asia to the U.S. is still fractional when compared with shipping anything to Australia. Um, <laughs> But uh, he he was telling me that they're they're making a, a specific women's jacket and there will be no sizes. Everything is a custom fit. And then about a week or two ago, he 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 uh, messaged me and he said, "Listen, um, we really appreciate all the work that you've been doing in terms of inclusivity in in fencing, in HEMA, in SCA fencing, and we want to name this jacket after you, which Aww. is one of the most amazing." So it's going to be the LS Diextrix, which is the mm-hmm. the the uh, gender neutral formation of the word diestra or diestra, um, and the jacket will be sold on Hema Gear Canada, but which is Phil Swift's site. But um, it is a separate project. It's a partnership between him and Atelier Masquerade. Uh, I can't tell you when okay. that's going to be coming out, but it is specifically built with women in mind. The way the padding works is it's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's not it's not blocks of foam. Um, it's actual nice. quilted padding. So not only does it breathe because foam for the love of God does not breathe. Oh, oh my God. God. It's awful. Yeah. And, and the thing is like, you're fighting in Europe, right? We're in Australia mm. <laughs> and, and everyone's like, yeah. oh, the, the, the jackets are fine. You're just being wizards. I'm like, come over here and start fencing in 40 degree weather, you know, centigrade, you know, yes. come on over. Yeah. And in 2000% <laughs> humidity, let's go, buddy. Come on. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, that that jacket is currently um, in development. It's it, it's in the later stages of development. I've seen I've seen um, uh, a mock-up in progress. It's looking really really cool. So the padding is quilted, uh, and it definitely is up to SCA standards. But right now they're submitting it uh, to a lab to to get it tested to 350 newtons. Excellent. I will yeah. dig up. So, so for listeners, I will I will find a link for it so you can go find it, and I'll put that in the show notes. So if you it, go to diamondwizard.net podcast, it'll be in the show notes. Um, at least Hema Gear Canada will, but I don't know if that jacket is is coming out yet. I I I, I may have I may have broken the news. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's fine. But okay, firstly, yeah. firstly, this this show isn't going to be going out for at least ten weeks, and secondly, yeah. um, you know if hopefully people will still be listening to these episodes years from now. So, yeah. you know, yes, definitely. but I, I will make sure, I will make sure that, that, that there's a link to this in the show notes to this episode. And I will update that link as it, as it becomes more available or, or as, as it develops. Yeah. So yes, people are going to need this. It sounds like a brilliant idea. Yeah. So, so to go back to the basic question, um, that is um, protective gear, jackets, um, gloves, Jackets, gloves, pants—that it really is all built for a male for a male frame, 
Um, I bought uh, I bought a set of of fight pants from a company that we don't need to worry, no need to name them. Uh, but when they sent me the pants, the front rise was the same as the back rise, which means oh. it's assuming I had zero ass. Like I I handed yes. the trousers over to 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 a friend of mine, a male friend of mine who had a similar build to me and he tried to put it on. He's like, no, there is no room for my, for, for my trunk. There's no. Yeah. Um, so I, I know sometimes we hear arguments from manufacturers saying, well, there's not enough demand from women to make, you know, to make larger yeah. sizes or women specific sizes, but it, it's a problem that feeds itself. If you don't offer options for women to buy from easily, then you're never going to open up into that market. Like, right. And, and also women will drop out because they can't get the equipment they need to do it. Yeah, exactly. I, like, mean, I, I, I do know people who, who have quit um, swordsmanship because they could not get access to the equipment that they needed. Yeah. You can't for, I so, mean, for me, I had to pay Australian about 550 Australian dollars for my spec. Part of that okay. was shipping. That's not, and then, bad. That's, it's a lot of money. But it's, I mean, but it, it's, it actually, it actually is that bad when I'm looking at, you know, my fellow male students who are like, ah, no, nah, I bought an off the rack, bought an off the rack spec for three fifty. Okay, you know, yeah, okay. Compared, right? compared to the, yeah, compared to the off the peg stuff, then right. And yeah. but, that's, but, but given how much work goes into customizing, it sounds to me like they are, they're not gouging their. No, no, I don't. I don't think they are. I, I would not say that. So, are. so it, it seems like a, a given that it's custom made. It seems like a fair increase in the price, but it's unfair that you should not have access to off the peg stuff. Exactly. Like, yeah. you know, um, and occasionally I can fit into like a dude's triple extra large, but either the bust won't fit or the hips won't fit. Yeah. It's usually the hips. Yeah. You know. Yeah, well, it's just just different shape, isn't it? I mean, and protective equipment should fit really well if it's going to work. I mean, I once bought a suit of armor, um, sort of. In in I I went about it the wrong way entirely. Um, The stuff the stuff arrived, and literally, uh, you know how greaves are supposed to fit tight to your calf, and that takes the weight of a lot of the leg armor. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, In the back, I could. I could literally fit a bottle of wine down the back of each greave when I had them on. That's not they were that loose. No, it was it was a complete disaster. So I ended up selling it to the Helsinki uh, Scottish uh, Finnish National Opera House, and then starting again from scratch. Starting again from scratch with a local armorer um, who did a much much better job of it. Uh, That's Marco Sari from my Finnish friends. Um, So yeah, so getting it getting it to fit properly it just makes all the difference if you can't lift your hands over your head because it brings your whole jacket up with it then yeah, you can't the, use yeah, high guard yeah. yeah you're fighting your equipment yeah okay. yeah and that's the thing fighting your equipment is it's what i mean everybody has to do it no matter what like even even the most even the most averagely built man buying something off the rack is still going to have to fight his equipment in some way but for for women uh, like i i can't tell you how many times i've seen women asking for smaller freaking gloves just smaller one size smaller yeah just one size smaller than the smallest one you got because you can't fight 
you, you know, if you've got these big flollopy fingery bits hanging off your, you can't fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I have tiny hands, and I ended up going to the Czech Republic uh, to a an armorer there and arranging for steel gauntlets to be made in a range of sizes. And the smallest size, I mean, I have tiny hands. The smallest size was too small for me. So, wow. I th- you know, yeah. So, so at least for a period, my students could get steel gauntlets sized to a very small hand. Yeah. And they were, but it, in the end, it was just too much work yeah. to, to do it all. And it wasn't making any money because I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't putting much of a markup on it because I wanted my students to be out of fence with it or whatever. And it just became too much work for not enough money and ended up just sort of dropping it. But, and, but there and wasn't sadly, that's always, like the, it's, that's sadly always the problem. It just becomes something that won't fit in a profit margin. And that leaves right. a bunch of people out and it sucks. And I don't, yeah. I wish I had an it answer. Does. I don't like bringing up a problem without an answer, but I don't have an answer. I wish I did though. Massive, massive government support for uh, people making armor for historical martial arts or protective equipment for historical martial arts so that they can afford to make it in sizes that don't make money. That would do it. So I have a few questions that I tend to finish up on because we are, we've actually run over time already because we're, I've been enjoying this conversation far too much. Um, So (laughs) what is the best idea you've never acted on? Ideas for me. um, It's it's a question that I'm unable to answer because if I don't act on it, I don't consider it's worth me acting on. If we were to visit some alternate universe and in that alternate universe, I acted on that idea and things went gangbusters, then that would be the best idea I didn't act on in my universe. But um, if I get an idea in my head and it lives there long enough, then I'll act on it. Um, if it doesn't, cause I, I, I have ADHD, so things will come into and out of my head very quickly. I have no executive function. Um, okay. so it's entirely possible that I've had a bunch of really amazing ideas that I've never acted on, but because they're out of sight, they're out of mind and I don't remember what they are, but you know, <laughs> okay. you know, but like the, the good ideas I have acted on are, um, uh, stepping further into translating uh, LVD texts, um, uh, joining up with Brisbane School of Iberian Swordsmanship. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Moving to Australia even. (laughs) I mean, taking a look at how the U.S. is right now. Yes, I think I would. Yes, Australia is on fire in a whole different way. Yeah. Um, Okay, so my last question. Um, and interpret this however you please. Somebody gives you a million pounds, dollars, or whatever to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. How would you spend the money? First of all, a million pounds or a million dollars is not much today, and that's a horrifying thing to think about. Right. Secondly, I'd spend it in one of two ways. No matter what, I'd send up. I'd set up some kind of endowment fund. You know, like a like a grant fund where mm-hmm. people could apply. And, and receive okay. money and then a bit of seed money would live on to so that it it could build capital and that way we could yeah. continue giving out grants for a significant amount of time um, okay what would the grants uh, be for what what what's that oh the what grants the grants? the grants would be for they would be for things like um, uh, 
I, I know Wichtenauer, Michael Chittister has had problems um, acquiring scans because they're too expensive. Uh, that would be an ideal grant. You know, he can write out a grant saying, I want to secure uh, the scans from this book, but the Library of France, France is saying I need to pay, you know, $2,500 in order to, or euro to get it. Uh, well, there's your grant. Get those up online. Okay. Um, yep. Another one would be, hi, I'm a sporting goods manufacturer in Perth, and I hear that the HEMA community in Australia would really like locally made jackets. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, um, uh, like, and the thing is, each region will like each, the different regions have their own issues. Like, for instance, in Queensland, I'm allowed to use steel weapons, steel swords, as long as they're blunt, without a license. I have to have a license for a crossbow. I have to have a license for a firearm, but I, I don't have to worry about my my swords. In Victoria, they are highly um, restricted, incredibly restricted. Yeah, uh, I, I've been to Victoria many times. Yeah, so you know exactly it. what I'm talking about. So yeah. that would be like if if uh, you know we've we've got um, we've got a waster manufacturer out in Sydney, and if he were to apply, he'd say I want to uh, I I need some money so I can I can work with the Victorian government to develop a waster that is both um, useful in a HEMA context, and I'll consult the HEMA schools in the area and also abides by all the rules and regulations of Victorian law. Here's your money. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, if, if somebody, if somebody out in like uh, the, you know, in the wilds of Minnesota is like, I really, really, really want to study Bolognese side sword. I'm the only person out here. I, you know, um, I would like to uh, develop a, um, a distance learning platform for Marazzo. Um, and, you know, I've got a couple of friends out in Italy who are helping me, and I've got some friends in the SCA who are going to help me out. I would like a, a grant to try to develop that. But here's your money. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, you need more than a million pounds. Okay, so so let's say right? you get 10 million. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. I've, I've just upped your imaginary budget because, you know, I haven't got <laughs> <to> do that. <laughs> okay well thank you very much Les it's been a delight talking to you oh thank you for taking the time with me I had a great time thanks for listening I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Lois Spangler remember to go along to guywindsor.net forward slash podcast for the episode show notes and for your free copy of sword fighting for writers game designers and martial artists several of the things we talked about are linked to in those show notes, so you should probably check that out. You can support the show by going along to patreon.com forward slash the sword guy and joining our wonderful patrons there, including new patron this week, Alison from Minnesota. Thank you, Alison. Patrons get, amongst other things, the transcriptions of the episodes as they are produced, outtakes from some of the episodes and patrons get to suggest questions for my guests. You can also help the show by reviewing it wherever you get your podcast from or rating it. And of course, please do share news of this show with your friends. Anyone who you think is into swords and would like this kind of show, please let them know that we exist. Remember to tune in next week when I'll be talking to Mike Chidester 
architect of Wittenau, which is without doubt the finest collection of historical martial arts treatises ever assembled anywhere on the planet in all of human history. And we get into the weeds in all sorts of areas, including producing high-level facsimiles of manuscripts. So you don't want to miss that. Remember to tune in next week and subscribe to the show so you shan't miss it. See you then.